Hi, I'm Wayne Zell and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, a fast-paced video cast dedicated to helping you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by the law firm of Zell Law, located in Reston, Virginia and Savannah, Georgia, and serving clients all across the country. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today, before we get to our special guest, we're going to be talking about the Qualified Small Business Stock Exclusion. It's undergone a lot of changes over the last 30 years, and it just recently underwent some additional change. So let's get to it. So the Qualified Small Business Stock, QSBS Exclusion, is only for individuals, partnerships, trusts, and estates. It does not apply to corporations that might own stock in another company. It's under Section 1202 of the Internal Revenue, Revenue Code. And up until recently, it allowed you to exclude 100% of capital gain on qualified small business stock. The gain exclusion was 100% after September 27th of 2010, up until this year. 75% between 2009 and 2010, and 50% is the current exclusion after passage of the Build Back Better Act. So the effective tax rate is applicable to the gain on the sale of qualified small business stock. It is not entitled to both a partial exclusion and the use of the lower capital gains rates. Any gain that is taxable under Section 1202 is taxed at a rate of 28% instead of 20%, which is the current capital gains rate. In addition, there may be a net investment income tax that's applicable to it. Up until the end of 2021, the net investment income tax only applies to certain types of gain. After 1231-2021, the net investment income tax of 3.8% applies all across the board. If your facts and circumstances were to result in a higher tax, if you applied Section 1202, you can try to fail the five-year holding period requirement so that you can get better tax treatment. And again, here are the tax rates that apply depending on when the asset was acquired and when the asset was sold. So there's a five-year holding period in order to qualify for this partial exclusion or total exclusion under Section 1202. If a taxpayer acquires the QSB stock in exchange for property other than money or other stock, the taxpayer is deemed to have acquired the stock on the date of the exchange. There's special tacking rules that apply. If you acquired the stock by gift or by death, you get to tack the holding period of the previous owner. Here's an example. Let's say Y purchases QSB stock on January the 15th in year one. And then he dies on March the 15th, leaving the asset to B. In year three, B inherits the QSB stock. Then B sells the stock on January 20th of year six. B satisfies the five-year holding period because he gets to tack Y's holding period to his holding period. There's other special tacking rules that apply to partnerships. But in the case of a partnership to a partner transfer, 
pass-through of Section 1202 benefits to partners who acquire their interest after the partnership acquired the QSB stock is not allowed. And QSB stock treatment and tacking hold, holding periods is permitted in certain non-recognition transactions, such as tax-free reorganizations or contributions to a uh, company in exchange for stock. For any one taxpayer, the maximum amount of eligible gain with respect to the stock of a single issuer that can be subject to the exclusion is effectively no more than the greater of $10 million reduced by any gain taken into account in prior years and 10 times the aggregate adjusted basis of the QSB stock. So let's say B and C each acquire QSB stock in X Corp for $500,000. B also purchases stock that's QSB stock in Z Corp for $2 million. X Corp and Z Corp are unrelated. B and C then sell all their stock. And all of the other requirements, including the holding period requirements, are met. Assume all the transactions are now subject to the 50% exclusion because it's after September 13th of 2021. B sells her X-Corp stock for $12 million. Of B's gain, up to $10 million is subject to relief under Section 1202. So assuming a 50% exclusion, B gets to exclude $5 million, 50% of $10 million, from gross income with respect to the sale of the X-Corp stock. B recognizes a gain of $6.5 million, $12 million, minus the $5 million basis, minus $5 million. C sells his X-Corp stock for $11.5 million. Of C's gain, up to $10 million is subject to 1202 exclusion. And assuming a 50% exclusion, he gets to exclude $5 million from gross income. So he recognizes gain of $6 million, and it's taxed at a 28% rate. Same facts, except B sells her Z Corp stock for $20 million. Of that gain, up to $20 million is subject to Section 1202. Why? Because it's the greater of $10 million or 10 times the adjusted basis, and B's basis was $2 million. So it's $2 million times 10. Therefore, $18 million of gain realized is subject to Section 1202, and B recognizes $9 million, half of that, with respect to the Z Corp stock, assuming a 50% exclusion. How do you determine the limit? Well, if you transfer property other than money or stock to a qualified small business stock corporation in exchange for stock in the corp, the taxpayer's basis is not less than the fair market value of the property you exchanged. So if C transferred property to W Corp solely in exchange for QSB stock, the transfer is tax deferred. C's basis in the property originally was $60,000, but it had a fair market value of $100,000. So although his basis is sixty, dollars for purposes of calculating the gain and the exclusion under 1202, it's 100 because that's the fair market value. 
The higher basis number, the fair market value number, also applies for purposes of determining the amount of gain. There are certain transactions that allow you to preserve the status of the QSB treatment. For example, if it's acquired in a tax-free reorg, such as what I was describing, or if you put your property into a new corporation in exchange for stock in a controlled corporation transaction, it also qualifies as QSB stock. For married individuals who file separate, the $10 million limit is reduced to $5 million or 10 times the adjusted basis of the stock. For alternative minimum tax, the 50, where the 50% exclusion applied back before 2009, alternative minimum taxable income included 53.5% of the gain, which produced an effective rate of 14% for those in a 26% AMT bracket and almost 15% for those in a 28% AMT bracket. Note that even though the Alt-Min tax did not apply after September of 2010. The question is whether or not it's coming back to haunt us because the exclusion's been reduced to 50%. In the Build Back Better Act that was passed by the House, taxpayers with adjusted gross income of $400,000 or more, including the gain, would be eligible to exclude only 50% of the gain. So the 100% exclusion still applies for small amounts of gain. But if you have more than that threshold amount of AGI and the transaction occurred after September 13th of 2021, it's a 50% exclusion. This is going to have a significant impact on founders and investors in startup corporations and could make the C corporation form less attractive. Remember that to qualify for QSBS treatment, the entity has to be a C-corporation when it issues the stock, and it only applies to U.S.-based C-corporations. There's an initial original issuance requirement that must be met, which we won't go into in great detail on today's broadcast. The aggregate gross assets of the corporation also cannot have exceeded $50 million at any time after August 10th, 1993, the date it was enacted, and the date on which the stock is issued. If the company grows in value such that its gross assets are worth more than 50 in the future, that's okay. It will not qualify Q disqualify you for QSB status. And lastly, and most importantly, QSB treatment is only available to certain qualified trades or business, even though they may be active trades or business. So, Businesses that are in the fields of health or law, engineering, architecture, accounting, actuaries, brokerage, brokerage services do not qualify for the QSBS exclusion, nor do banking, insurance, financing, leasing, investing, or other similar businesses, and certain other businesses of operating hotels, motels, restaurants, and similar businesses. So these businesses that I just spoke about do not qualify for QSB treatment. If you've got questions on the qualified small business stock exclusion, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or look us on, up on the web. Send us an email. Contact us at zelllaw.com. 
I'm Wayne Zell. You're listening to Blueprint for Wealth. And stay tuned for our special guest. Welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell. And with me today is my special guest, David Eisner, who was the founder and former CEO of DataPrize Incorporated. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Wayne. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, you've been on my podcasts and my radio show in the long, distant past. But since then, there's been a journey that you've been on to grow DataPrize. First, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the well, actually, before we do that, let's, let's focus on three things that we're going to try to take away uh, today for the listeners. So they'll, they'll be anxiously tuned in listening for these three things. The first is you're going to tell us how it's possible or is it possible to grow a company organically and still reach a successful exit. And then the second uh, thing that we want to focus on is if you had to identify the biggest mistake you made, the biggest challenge you had to overcome uh, during your tenure as, as the uh, CEO and founder of DataPrize, what would that be? And then the third thing, the third takeaway is what one or two things would you advise entrepreneurs who are trying to start their business today to do or not to do in trying to grow their business and achieve a successful exit themselves. But first, before we get into those three things, Perfect. how did you start DataPrize? Where did it come from? When did you start it? Uh, tell us a little bit about it. And what, what was DataPrize or what is DataPrize today? Yeah, no, happy, happy to be here. Happy to, to talk about these things. It's uh, near and dear. It's, uh, it's a 25-year journey. You were with me uh, a big portion of the, of the ride. I very appreciated. Couldn't have done it without some of, the, some of your hard work, of course. Um, started in, uh, as, as a young engineer right out of college, a couple of years out of college in 1995. Um, took a ride all the way to uh, 20, just before 2020, 2019, so just shy of 25 years. Um, and we're, we were an IT service provider, uh, actually a managed service provider. They also called an MSP, which has come uh, really into um, – uh, prominence in the last uh, five to ten years of, of being there to support small businesses. We really just do business support for everything IT. So we're their IT department, we're their consultants, we're their strategic advisors, we handle security, we handle help desk, we handle their PCs, we handle their software uh, for companies that don't want to stand up or build their own uh, IT department, which should be everybody uh, these days. So um, that's what we do. And, and, you know, how I started it was with nothing of that in mind. Um, I started simply by uh, needing a job and uh, deciding uh, to sort of um, go off on my own <clears throat> as a young guy, as young people uh, often do, and uh, had nothing to lose, no money, uh, no real clue, uh, but sort of an idea that I wanted to, to stay in technology and see if I could sort of chart my own path, and that was really it, uh, and started out doing uh, IT consulting, which is um, sort of this ubiquitous term for just being in the business and getting paid to help people. Uh, and over time, uh, I figured out that uh, recurring revenue was this like these two magical words, uh, particularly if you wanted to keep, uh, keep a job and, and keep cash coming in, and was really able in the early years to sort of um, transition from sort of this hourly support uh, guy, uh, which is the traditional way IT and tech support is provided or was provided, I should say. Uh, way back when, to sort of providing these sort of blanket 
you know, IT management support plans. Uh, and I kind of created my own brand there and created these gold, silver, platinum, ruby uh, type escalating levels and sort of walked door to door in our, our local geography outside of Washington, D.C. over here and, and sold a whole bunch of them and, and, and sort of the business took off from there. So that was uh, how, we, how we started and good timing and um, a lot of persistence and, uh, and a 25-year journey. So. So you had an office originally in Rockville, but then you yeah. expanded and added offices all across the country. By the time the exit occurred, how many offices did you have? So by the time the exit occurred, we were, well, we're all over the Mid-Atlantic at that point. We're in Baltimore, uh, Richmond, New York City, uh, Philadelphia. Um, we had an office, um, uh, have an office or had an office, like, I think we still have the office uh, in Phoenix, uh, and a couple other geographies. And, uh, you know, again, you mentioned it at the outset, but all, all done organically and, and carefully. So what was it like trying to establish a new office in a new jurisdiction like Baltimore or Richmond yeah. or New York? Yeah, it, it, hard <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and risky. Uh, for a small business because of capital expenses and, 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 and overhead and, and just the risk of, of, of starting something new. So um, my sort of theme, which I know you know, is sort of the go slow approach. And, and, and we really uh, were conservative and, and grew uh, linearly. So when we were in Rockville, it made sense to open up an office in, in Washington, D.C. So we had an actually D.C. proper office as well. Uh, and it was just a few miles away. And then up the road in Baltimore, we did, did the same thing. And so by doing that, we, we were able to sort of hit our client base from multiple directions, but relatively in the same geography, what I call drive time away, uh, you know, okay. hour or two away. So. so you had to add in people in each of those offices that had the specialty or expertise to complement what you do for your clients. Right. I imagine that was a difficult uh, task, finding the right people in, in these remote markets that you hadn't been in. Yeah, I mean, in any services business, and I would think particularly IT services, um, uh, finding the right people are, are, are key, uh, is key. Uh, and, and back then, um, we, we did have a sort of this, this blueprint or formula. I mean, we knew that we needed someone strong in technology. So, you know, back in the day or early days, it was about folks that were Microsoft certified, um, for example. Uh, and now there's there's a whole uh, litany of different certifications people people aspire to, but back then they were the they were the one that you had to have. And so as long as folks had that, and you know we had this rudimentary training program and 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 whatnot, and we were close by. So for me, the key was being up the road uh, from the new office so that we could we could hit it and support it. it. It was it was not really feasible, and 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 I wouldn't be wouldn't have been able to do it to sort of open up a, a, an office across the country in those in those early stages. So when we talk about organic growth, which is what you all did predominantly, I mean, you, I know you had one acquisition, but it was a small bulk yeah. on acquisition. Yeah. Really, it was organic growth. Organic growth is basically taking the money that you have earned and reinvesting, reinvesting that money into the business. So you really uh, were very, I like, <laughs> can you hold that cup up for the screen, please? The listen, hold it in the middle. I just right picked this up. Move, it, move it into the middle so they can see what it says, where, where your face is. Uh, I don't know if you can read it. It says retire. Retire, there you go. <laughs> so that's great. That's completely um, uh, incidental, by the way, I would, I would add. No, no, I'm just, I, I think it's great. So the, um, the organic growth that you generated, tell me, you had to basically surround yourself with people that would facilitate that growth. 
Tell me about building the team that allowed you to grow organically and the type of yeah. people that you had on your team. Yeah, I, you know, we, that's, that's a really great question. I mean, I had a small, tight-knit group uh, of managers that were with me for most of, if, almost all the journey uh, for, for not quite 25 years, but certainly a, um, a partner, uh, Scott, that was with me uh, almost, almost from the beginning. And uh, he and I were sort of uh, the yin and the yang to, yang to um, um, managing the business, uh, where I focused primarily on strategy and, and sort of financial aspects of the business and, and, and technique, if you will. And he was the guy that handled the, the HR and the operational piece. And together, we sort of um, really complement each other. It's very difficult to grow a substantial business all by one, oneself. So I was able, was lucky, not only to, to have Scott, but to have this cadre of or cast of characters that were loyal and competent and smart and uh, really helped us uh, uh, from the early days. Did you, um, w when you all exited uh, and sold to a private equity firm, um, how big was Dataprise at that time? So we, we were, um, I, I can give this number. So we were in sales uh, in 2019 when we exited north of, uh, north of 50 million. And how many employees did you have at that point in time? Uh, 320, I believe is our number at the so, time. I mean, this is an amazing story. Um, the way I look at it, at least it's an amazing story. It's a, a story of growth from one person to five. And I remember going to your annual, uh, gala every <laughs> year as they grew and grew and grew. They got so big that you know, we had to, you had to rent out massive, uh, uh, facilities to accommodate these, these events. But Getting all the way up to 350, 375 people is just an incredibly difficult task. How did you keep people focused and keep them as employees and incentivized? What were the yeah. what were the special what was the special sauce that you used to grow organically? Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's very difficult, right? I mean, it, it, to, to grow a business. I think now with where we are in in, in 2021 and and sort of the post-pandemic or, or intra-pandemic time, right. uh, it, you know, it, it is, I can't imagine uh, some of the remote challenges of, of keeping people and sending them. So, so back then when technology, I don't want to say technology was completely new in, in the mid-1990s, but sort of our model or mode of business was sort of new, newfangled. It was kind of a new idea of how we were going to support small businesses that didn't have a lot of choices before. It was really just a consultant or trying to call 1-800-BIG-GUY. Um, and, and so there was a great need for what we were providing and, and sense of timing always helps. And so therefore it was fun, uh, and challenging for, for our, our employees. And, and, you know, if you're a technologist, uh, a tech guy like, like me, you don't want to be pigeonholed and the ability to come into, to a small and growing data prize and have some fun and sort of run your client base the way you see fit. And, and, and the whole gambit of technology, uh, you can imagine the continuum of, of things that they had to deal with, that's really fun and busy and hard and, and, and all those kinds of things. So, you know, in the early years in particular, um, really people gravitated to those kinds of uh, opportunities. You know, the, the one thing I noticed um, in attending your annual events was you always recognized top performers. And yeah. people were given, you know, just incredible, you know, benefits, also uh, recognition at these events, which was really very uh, inspiring to watch. 
from a, you know from an outsider's perspective, but you also uh, incentivize them with various tools. What were some of the tools that you used to incentivize uh, your yeah, folks? Yeah. yeah, so I just want to address what you, because you hit the nail on the head. I mean, culture was, is, is, was king for, for us. I mean, again, a small company, organically grown, even back in the day, couldn't, couldn't pay as much as, as some of uh, our you know, larger competitors and, and the larger stalwart you know, technology firms. So we had to make it up in treating people right. It's all the traditional things you always, you always think and hear about. Um, but, but we really had to do it. We had to have contests. We had to have um, sort of uh, uh, incentive billing uh, bonus programs, rather, um, um, uh, award uh, ceremonies, um, uh, training. Uh, and, and, and we were really sensitive in the early days of um, promoting from within. It was re- we really want for going outside and bringing in some almost almost to a fault. Uh, whereas you know, looking back, we probably could have gone out and hired uh, an X uh, uh, strategist or a Y technologist would have helped us a little more. Uh, maybe would have cost a little more too. But we were more likely to just say, you know, uh, uh, David, uh, it's your you've been here for three or four years. It is your turn to become a senior manager, and it's your turn to learn these skills and, and lead some people. So we, we really focused on giving people um, opportunities. So, so summarizing, I guess the first most important point, can you grow a, a firm organically and have a successful exit? The answer is yes. And the key, the key uh, components are having a great management team, having a great uh, culture to yeah. help you know, grow that, that company, and then treating people right. All, all the way and promoting from within. So those are, those are key components. If you're an entrepreneur listening to this uh, video cast today, take that away with you so that uh, you understand that it can be done and you can grow organically without going out and buying other companies. You can. Sec- second thing I wanted to focus on today is um, if you had to identify one of the biggest mistakes you made or one of the biggest challenges you had to face uh, as an entrepreneur growing the business, what would that be? Well, you don't have enough time for me to sort of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, expand on all my mistakes. So uh, I'll just tell you some things that are, that are sort of on the personal level. I mean, of course, we made mistakes. I mean, we made uh, investment mistakes with our capital. Uh, we made uh, hiring mistakes like everyone did, although not as many over the course. I mean, we were really lucky there. Um, well, we, we went left. We should have gone right. You know, as a personal level, as, as, a, as a younger guy that was coming up and learning business principles and and relationship management and how to sell to customers and, and, and keep them happy. You know, I had to sort of make this for me, sort of this pivot decision in the first three to four years of our business. Again, our continuum was about 25 years. So it was a long time. Um, and I found myself, I, I you know, thought I was a pretty good technologist. And if I showed up at your door for a business or, or sell law, I would do a good job. And, and I was trained that way. And I wouldn't go wouldn't quit until, until the, the job was done. I, found myself needing to make a choice of whether to pull myself back from dealing with clients and going out and being the guy, um, even though it would have been productive and, and I would have generated billings and, 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 and revenue and clients would have been happy to see you know, the, the, the CEO and all those kinds of things, but it would not have given me the time. The time commitment in doing that would not have given me the time to sort of focus on growing the business on our products and, and our partners and, and, and our team and, and, and all the different things that are required to sort of anvil for the next, the next level of success. So I sort of strategically disconnected. Now, it, it was a mistake because I remember one time, my biggest client at the time, 
who was our, 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 our million dollar, what we used to call our million dollar client. It was, it was, we were very small. We, our typical contract size might have been 30,000, 40,000 per year. And we had this one client that was a million dollar client way back in the, in the late 90s, 2000 time frame. And I ran out of that client as fast as I could. I put a team in there and, and, and I was doing other things and, and using the money to invest in sales recently and all these different things. And a year later, the client fired us. And said to me, you know, I went over there and, and said, you know, what, what happened and, and what did we do wrong? He goes, you didn't do anything wrong. You guys did a good job. You kind of worked yourselves out of a job, but you never showed up after you left. You didn't, you didn't come in and take me to lunch enough times. You didn't come in and um, uh, kiss, the, <laughs> kiss the ring and, and sort of just be, the, you know, you're too small to not be connected. And so I learned that um, no matter what you're doing in the back, uh, keeping that relationship strong with your with your client, I, and I, it's particularly in your services, as you well know, uh, Wayne, is was a key, and that was so that was a big mistake then, and and I learned that probably um, not as quickly as I could have. The last the postscript to that is that while that was a tactical mistake, I still think strategically what I did was great for our growth because you can't be the pie maker uh, as a, as the as a, as one of those good um, strategy books uh, will teach you. You can't always make pies and be successful. You have to teach someone else. And so I spent a lot of my time sort of thinking about how to scale the business. So that necessarily made me have to step back from the day to day. So my, my biggest mistake monetarily was clearly back then, but strategically it still kind of was the necessary thing. And I think as an entrepreneur growing a business, when do you actually pull back uh, from the day to day, what what brought you to business, and when do you actually let other people do what you probably could do in some ways better? You know, that's a great lesson for me as well as an entrepreneur uh, that's growing their business. Absolutely. When do you let others uh, take center stage, and can you get them to the level where they can take center stage and replace you? That's real. You know, I get that question from clients all the time. That's the what, key. You know, what's your business succession plan? So anyway, um, and then that's the last the question I have for you today. And it's a it's a simple one is what one or two pieces of advice would you give an entrepreneur uh, if they're, you know, in the middle of growing their business or just starting out for that matter? Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I, I could give you 20. I'll try to keep it short as, 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 as I can. Top two. Um, top two. You know, I would say have uh, a passion for what you're doing. If you if you're if your vocation can be your avocation or your avocation can be your vocation. Then, then you know you'll never work a day in your life, and and so having a passion for what you do versus oh this is a burden, this is a job. I mean that that's a cliche, but it is so true. And the and the second thing that goes, you know, in my mind right along with that is a, a time horizon. If you're going to grow an organic business, you need to have patience. Um, and and all those things like deferred gratification and persistence and all those 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 things that you hear about um, uh, taking your time. For me, that was key. There were there were a dozen opportunities in 25 years for us to sort of um, get out and, and and sell out or partner up and and sort of take a little bit of money off the table and and do something different. But you know, a I had nothing else to do, <laughs> uh, and 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 b um, we really saw, especially after the first few years, sort of the potential of where we could be. Um, build ourselves a platform, get folks that are uh, interested in us that are much larger, have much bigger capital, and take us national which is sort of where we wound up. And without that patience and sort of longer view, it's not magic, it's just having a little patience. Without having that, um, we never would have been able to grow an organic business uh, the way we did. So I, you know, get, just to sum that up, I, I think 
people sometimes think that you have to start a business and 12 months later, 24 months later, you got to get out. Yeah, I got to go public kind of a thing. And for me, it was a 25 year um, uh, journey that that worked out. So patience is a, is a big thing for me. Awesome. This is great advice and it's great advice for the listeners. And I hope the listeners got something out of this today. David, thank you for being a special guest on Blueprint My pleasure. For Wealth. And listeners, thank you for listening and joining us on Blueprint for Wealth today. Join us next time for a special educational topic and special guest. I'm Wayne Zell. Have a great week. Thank you.